Well, I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We're nearing, of course, the end of the book of Galatians. And, of course, we have seen, as we have gone through this, the Apostle Paul's primary concern and his primary reason for writing to these churches in this region of Galatia. It's a number of churches. And the reason that he wrote this letter is that there was a group of men who had arrived in Galatia and they were preaching a different gospel, Paul calls it. Uh, They showed up and uh, they began preaching Christ, but it was a a slightly different message that they were proclaiming. Uh, They were preaching that in order to be justified before God, if you're going to stand righteous before him, you not only need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, But also, you have to kind of complete the task, and you have to come under the law of Moses, the covenant of Moses. And so, therefore, if you're a man, you have to be circumcised, and then you would all need to keep the food laws and also all of the other laws that we find in the uh, the Mosaic covenant, we find in the Old Testament, and you need to keep the feast days and so on. And not only do you need to do these things, but... You need to do these things in order to make sure that you are saved. So you believe in Christ, but you kind of need to get yourself over the line and finish the task here and complete the work. And so you believe in it's, it's, you're going to be justified by faith in Christ plus your own works of the law. And Paul is saying and has been saying throughout Galatians that that is completely false completely wrong that is a different gospel that's not even a gospel at all it's no good news at all in fact it's bad news because Paul makes clear that if you want to try to be justified by some measure if you want to keep some sort of law in order to be saved if you want to treat the law as some kind of a ladder to help you get across the finish line or get to heaven then you have to keep all of God's law in its entirety, in absolute perfection. And nobody can do that. As soon as you fail at one point, you're guilty before God and you deserve justice. You deserve his condemnation. We think of Adam in the Garden of Eden and just what seems to us like one insignificant sin plunges all of humanity into this curse, into sin. The wages of sin is death. And there is no work that we can do to undo the sins that we have committed. If we want to try to keep the law in order to be saved, we've got to keep the entire thing. You can't just say, well, I'll just keep a few laws and I'll rely on those works of law in order to to be enough to get me across. That doesn't work. Scripture says that very clearly. Paul is saying that very clearly. God's law demands absolute righteousness and perfection of every single person or you're damned. So if we want to go down that road, that's where it leads. That's that's the bad news. And that's why he's saying their gospel is no good news at all, because they're putting you back on that pathway to law. The real gospel that Paul is defending throughout the book of Galatians is that a sinner can do nothing in and of ourselves to justify ourselves before God. Rather, what we do is we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are justified by God's grace alone through faith alone. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it is because of what he has done that we are declared righteous before God. 
Christ has taken the penalty that we deserve. He has taken our sins upon himself and he has suffered the wrath of God on the cross. He has died for our sins. He was buried, but then he rose again from the dead. And he said, did he not, as he was being crucified, it is finished. The curtain temple was torn in two. There's no more work or activity that we add to try to complete the salvation. Jesus has done it all. We believe in him, and that is how we are justified. We are forgiven by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous by God by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. That comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not through faith, and then we've got to do some more things in order to earn it. No, it's just simply God's grace to us. It's truly free, it's truly grace, and it is received by the instrument of faith, by believing alone, period. And so Paul is writing to correct this error that has been brought in and that is being believed by at least some of the people in these churches in Galatia. But Paul has gone on, not only is he saying we're justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus, but he's also telling us throughout Galatians that there's more that happens. When a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ truly, they have been given the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes along and makes that person a new creature in Christ Jesus. And so that individual doesn't just say, well, sure. It's not just some mental assent. They say, I believe in the Lord, and then we just carry on uh, sinning and doing anything we desire, and let's just keep on sinning so that grace may abound and whatever. That, that's not saving faith. And Paul has made this very clear, that we are freed from the curse of God's law that hangs over us. We are freed from the condemnation that our sins deserved, deserve. We are freed in order to walk in, in a new life unto the Lord. The Holy Spirit regenerates a sinner. We're made actually new as we believe in Christ Jesus. We are united to Christ spiritually. And we are, this is all so that we might then walk in a new life unto the Lord. And so Paul has been making that very clear as we have seen in chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We are free in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to earn nothing before God. and We are freed from the condemnation of our sin. But our freedom is not a freedom to then just give ourselves over to our flesh, over to sin. Rather, we are to walk in this new way by the Spirit, as he has said. And so let's continue through in, in Galatians chapter 6. We're going to... We're going to look at verses 1 to 5 today, but I want to back up just a couple verses into chapter 5 and, and begin reading in, chap, in verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. 
As we look at these words, it occurs to me that uh, just, just how important it is that we would be renewed in our thinking. That we would have our, our minds and our thinking renewed by the Holy Spirit through his word. I don't think there's anybody out there who would deny the fact that it's good to love your neighbor. Uh, this, this, as it's often called, this golden rule, uh, it enjoys widespread support, I think everywhere we turn, throughout society. Sure, you love your neighbor. I think everyone agrees with that. However, there's complete disagreement when it comes time to define what that looks like. What is love? Now, this is something there is not widespread agreement on. What is love? What does it mean to love someone? What does that entail? What does it look like? How is love to be expressed? And it's not surprising that in society we would have disagreements on this because we have all manner of individuals in society with different beliefs, different presuppositions, different worldviews that are influencing, maybe sometimes even they're unaware of this, but influencing their own definition of love. But when we move into the church, we might think that now that we're dealing with Christians and with church people, that that disagreement would just automatically disappear and we would all be on the same page with exactly what love means and what love is. However, this simply isn't the case. We can be in danger of assuming that our understanding of love is Biblical, when in fact we might still be unduly influenced by society or even by our own flesh. We may indeed stand in need of having our minds renewed in and through the word. And these verses do that very thing for us. They reveal to us what love looks like within the church. And as we come to, as we've said, as we move into chapter 5 and now into chapter 6, Paul has moved into what we might call a more practical section of his book. He has laid out through those first four chapters and into chapter five what it is we believe about the gospel, what the gospel is, what freedom in Christ is, what we believe, how we ought to view the Christian life, and so on. And now he is addressing further the specific churches that were in Galatia. And he is explaining what it looks like to live out the fruit of the Spirit in their given situation. Of course, we were reminded again that this book of Galatians is a letter. It is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul, we believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he wrote it to churches. It's not an encyclopedia of, here's everything you ever need to know about life in the church, but he's addressing a specific situation. And we know that part of the situation there was conflict. Uh, Last week, as Harley preached uh, through the end of chapter 5, he helpfully drew attention to the fact that the section on the fruit of the Spirit is bracketed by two warnings to the Galatian churches about their infighting. In chapter 5, verse 15, it says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This warning. And then again in verse 26, which we just read, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The false teachers in Galatia had brought about this infighting and this dissension. 
They'd stirred things up there. And as Paul had written to them and is bringing correction to their doctrine and to this false gospel, he's also now bringing correction to the churches, specifically about their practice. They are fighting with one another. They are biting one another, devouring one another. They're in danger of consuming each other. And Paul has written about the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, and he has called them to walk according to the Spirit and to wage war against their flesh. And now he gets into some further specifics that will help these churches collectively, as churches, to love one another and to walk in peace. And so as we go through these verses, we're going to look at three ways that a church practices biblical love. And again, this is not exhaustive of biblical love. There's a lot more that we could say that love demands. But again, uh, Paul is addressing this initially, specifically to the Galatians. And it's here for our edification as good as well, and good as well. And so we're looking at three ways that a church practices biblical love. And the first is... Loving one another involves gently and carefully rescuing those caught in sin. Loving one another involves gently and carefully rescuing those caught in sin. So we see this in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So this verse says that if we're faced with a particular situation, then here's what we're to do about it and here's how we're to do it. And the specific situation is if anyone is caught in any transgression. Again, Paul is talking to churches here and he's saying that if any believers among you in the church are caught up in sin, then here's what you're to do about it. Now that word caught up suggests being ensnared or being trapped in sin. It has a sense of surprise to it, that it's out of the usual character for a believer to do. Uh, Martin Luther said that this isn't referring to some malicious actor, but rather to someone who has fallen due to weakness. It is someone who is overcome with temptation, and they're now ensnared in a given sin. It might even suggest an ongoing trouble with that sin, something we might call a besetting sin. It could be that this individual is blind to it. They don't even see that they're caught up in the sin. Or they might even be aware of it, but they simply feel too weak and perhaps unable to overcome it on their own. And so he he says, if you see somebody in that condition, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him. I think that word spiritual could use some defining. Um, it, is, it is not a category of people who have some vague sense of the beyond, uh, the spiritual realm. That's how many people think of it today. Someone who's spiritual is just a category of people. They might consider themselves Christians. They might be a Buddhist. They might be anything in almost anything. Uh, but they're a spiritual person because they have some sort of belief in God or in the spirit realm or something like that. That's not what this is talking about. That's not what spiritual means. Nor should we read this as if it's saying, you who are super spiritual should go restore. 
Uh, so that, you know, Paul's just talking to maybe some elite few. Uh, in which case, if we're all being honest with ourselves and examining ourselves, uh, we're all going to be looking at each other saying, well, that's not me. And then no one's going to go address this brother. Uh, or you're going to have somebody who s- says, "I super spiritual person over here, I'll do it. And then that's very likely not the person that you want doing this. Um, but in the New Testament, so it doesn't just mean the, the, the elite of, of the elites of Christianity who do this. In the New Testament, to, to my knowledge, all of, and if it's not all, it's almost all of, the references to, this, to the word spiritual, when this word spiritual is used, has reference to the Holy Spirit. So a spiritual song, for example, which we read of in Colossians and Ephesians 5.19, a spiritual song is a song that is corresponding to or in keeping with the Holy Spirit. A spiritual person, then, is someone who possesses the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul contrasts the spiritual man with the natural man. The spiritual man is a reference to the Christian, the believer, who has the Holy Spirit within him, and the natural man is the one who does not. It's a Christian and it's a a non-believer. And if we think about the context here, the greater context, back into chapter 5, Galatians has had much to say about the spiritual person. And I think verse 25 summarizes what he means by the spiritual person. It is one who lives by the Spirit, that is, has been born again, has been made new by the work of the Spirit within him or her, uh, applying the, the salvation of Christ to that individual. We have a, a spiritual life by the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. And then it says also, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So the spiritual person is alive because of what the Spirit has done, has the Spirit of God residing within them, and then seeks to walk in that new life, seeks to keep in step with the Spirit. And so when Paul says, you who are spiritual, he's saying if that is you, which is what is a description of Christians, then you have a responsibility if you see this brother caught in sin to restore this one. To restore is to put back into order or to put back into proper condition. It again shows that we're dealing with a fellow believer here whose transgression can properly be described as them falling out of order. It's not in keeping with who they are in Christ. They're they're trapped, they're ensnared here in this fleshly activity that we're to flee. And so we need to see here that Paul is, is saying that it is a loving thing to do to restore the fallen brother. Now, so many people want to have a view of Christianity and even of church where it's just very individualistic. It's just me, my, it's my spirituality and it's nobody else's business and you have no right to say anything to me or to come to me if you see anything of concern. And that's, that's not biblical Christianity. Love involves this type of restoration, but Paul doesn't just say, go restore them. He also tells us the manner in which we're to go. And and what he describes here is entirely consistent 
with what we see elsewhere in Scripture when it talks about approaching a brother or sister about their sin. He says here, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The flesh, let's be honest, the flesh can really enjoy correcting people. They can enjoy going to someone who has a problem and pointing it out. They can enjoy finding the faults and the the sins in other people. We, We know that fleshly activity, as we saw last time, involves rivalries and dissensions and divisions. That involves typically meddling in other people's business and things and and, and blowing up other people's perceived sins or differences, etc. The flesh can really enjoy going to someone. But the fruit of the Spirit includes, among other things, gentleness, as we saw last time. That gentleness could be even translated as humility. And this is precisely how restoration is to be done within the the church, within the body. And so we, we see it clearly does matter how we do this activity. Our disposition, our tone even with brothers and sisters on these issues, it, it does matter. We're called to do this gently, to do this humbly. We're told to keep watch on ourselves as well as we do this, lest we also be tempted. Again, temptation abounds in those moments where we're going to address sin in another person. It abounds. There's all kinds of opportunities for it. And we're to set a guard over our own souls. Lest we become, I think, maybe the most obvious sin that is lurking in that moment would be the sin of pride. I'm going, I feel better about myself because of your error. I go arrogantly as if you're just ridiculous for this problem you have and and I would never be in that situation and get a grip, man. One writer says this. He says, remember that it is easy for you to fall also. This consideration is the best remedy against outrage, pride, cruelty, tyranny, meanness, disparagement, judgment, lack of consideration, and condemnation of the one who has fallen. To consider yourself is to weigh up your own weakness and your own mistakes It is to examine the evil thoughts of your heart and to study your own propensity to fall. That's how we keep guard on ourselves. We realize that I am of like substance with you. I could just as easily be in this situation and in need of help. I know that I have that log that's in my own eye that I'm seeking to deal with. And by comparison, what I see in you is a speck. This is the kind of attitude we are to go in. Christian love within the church involves gently restoring those caught in sin, keeping guard over our own souls. This is an aspect of church life that it's it's uncomfortable and it's difficult even when it's done well. And sometimes putting something into order, restoring someone, can be painful, like the setting of a bone. Indeed, we're... Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the friend 
needs to say something hard and it wounds a little bit. But the goal is to be faithful in that wounding for a greater purpose and end, a restoration, a setting right. And clearly this whole matter requires the fruit of the Spirit that we might begin by recognizing first that none of us are beyond the possibility of being caught in transgression and in need of help and in need of restoration. And it does require humility to acknowledge as much. Humility to not despise the person who would come to us with concern. And on the other hand, to, to obey what Paul says here, what Scripture tells us to do, to, to be the ones to go to seek to restore someone. This likewise, to do that well, requires, obviously, courage, humility, it requires self-examination. But all of this is part of Christian love. We are those who, as we saw in chapter 4, are serving to serve one another in love. And so we are to look out for each other's ultimate good in love. It's not loving to just look the other way when a brother or sister is caught up in the transgression. So let us strive for such humility that we would welcome the concern of others, even if they don't do it well. Right? Sometimes I'm reminded of what David wrote in Psalm 141. I flipped right there. Psalm 141, verse 5. He says, Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Our first reaction when someone comes to us to bring a concern to us should not be even about their tone. Maybe, maybe, they could have said it a little nicer or could have done it in a different way or maybe they, maybe they even failed to do it with proper gentleness. That may well be true and that's an issue in and of itself to be, to be certain. But our first response ought to be perhaps this person is correct and to deal with the substance of the concern. Right? David's saying, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. That's the attitude we ought to have if somebody comes to us. That doesn't mean righteous men should go around striking people uh, every time they need to get their attention. But if that's what it takes, this is the attitude we ought to have. If that's what it takes uh, to snap out of it, for someone to get my attention, then let him do it and let my head not refuse it because it's a kindness. So enough for, for point one. Loving one another involves gently and carefully rescuing those caught in sin. Secondly, Loving one another involves humbly bearing one another's burdens. So look at verse 2 again. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Going to the sin-ensnared brother or sister is one way that we bear one another's burdens. But this principle here widens out the application of this. There are many different ways that believers can become weighed down and burdened and in need of help. And Christian love calls us to come alongside and help to bear that weight. We might be weighed down by, as we've been seeing, the sin that we are struggling with. But it could also be sorrow and difficulty 
from any manner of trial that we might face, from various types of loss, various types of pain and suffering, persecution, calamity, it could be poverty, famine, etc. Sometimes we just simply need help to bear the load. And there's no shame in that. Bearing one another's burdens is a way, Paul says here, that we fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ is simply another name for what Paul has already laid out for us. Back in chapter 5, verse 13, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The, The moral law of God is summarized by the commands to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And here in chapter 6, he now calls this the law of Christ. This law of love is the law of Christ. And again, for Christians, for Christ's people, this is not a law that is, is not spoken of or presented to us here as if it is something that we do in order, it's a ladder that we're to climb in order to try to reach the end and, and then hopefully reach salvation As we've seen, as we've said, as is the key theme throughout Galatians, God pardons and justifies sinners and adopts sinners as his sons and gives us an eternal inheritance by his grace. And it is received by the instrument of believing God. That's how we receive those things. We are in this way freed from the condemnation of our sin and from its ultimate lordship over us. We are made new creations to now walk in a new life into the Lord. And this very walking by the Spirit, as we do this, we are guided by the law of Christ, our Savior. as those who've been graciously saved by him. And this newness of life that we walk in is precisely what Paul is and has been exhorting us to. And part of that, if we want to get specific about what that is, that's what we're doing here, part of that is bearing each other's burdens. This is the way we fulfill the law of Christ. So once again, we see here that Christianity is not a solo sport, so to speak. Paul is writing this letters to the, the churches of Galatia, remember. And these one another commands, as we often call them, they presuppose that you're in a church, that you're committed to these things with your fellow brothers and sisters, with mutual concern for one another. This bearing one another's burdens, it's something that is obviously at times tiring, It can even be exhausting at times, uh, helping others out, bearing someone else's burdens, their load with them. It goes against our our fleshly inclination towards selfishness. And perhaps this is why Paul continues to bang the drum of humility here. In verse 3, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He's saying no one is above helping a brother or sister in need. It is pride that would get in the way of this very thing, 
that would keep us from bearing others' burdens. Pride would say, I don't really have time for this. Pride would say the things that I would like to do or my own stuff is, 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 is just takes priority and I, I don't have time for, for, for these other people. I don't have time to help with other people's problems. Or maybe we might even think, uh, if we're a certain forms of pride, that that person, you know, maybe deserves what they're getting, right? What have they done that, got, you know, I haven't, I haven't had that trouble. Like, some, they're obviously doing something wrong here. Or they've made their bed. You know, they can lie in it. You know, we can't be bothered to lift a finger. Of course, we remember the Galatians were being infected with self-righteousness, putting hope in your own works and your own actions. And that necessarily breeds pride and the division and dissension that's going on in the church. Because it's the self-righteous person who looks at other people who haven't measured up to you. Like, well, I do all these good things. I'm not that bad. What's wrong with you? What's your problem? Right? That's the very thing Jesus dealt with so often with the Pharisees. They look down on every sinner because they... They've not done that. They've worked really hard and they see themselves as being pretty good. And so they have this arrogance and pride about them. They don't see themselves as being a, a, sinner, a sinner on the same kind of a plane as the tax collectors and the prostitutes and things. They're, they're a different sort. They think themselves something. But that's a self-deception, Paul says. What Paul is getting at and throughout these verses is that we should all have self-awareness of our own proneness to sin, of our own weakness, a realization that I am indeed nothing, and I'm certainly not above falling into some sin, and therefore I'm not above compassionately helping a brother or sister who did fall into sin. Likewise, I might be greatly blessed right now of the Lord, and I might be tempted to think that I have done all the right things, and that's why the Lord has given me so much, and I am so blessed with all that I have. But surely we realize, do we not, that we are just one horrible incident away from having no strength at all whatsoever, from losing virtually everything. And why hasn't that been the case? Because God in His sovereignty has given you what he has and has blessed you in the way that he has. And so when someone else faces that calamity, we don't say, maybe they did something to deserve that. We would gladly go help realizing we likewise could lose everything in an instant. Again, Paul's admonishing us to humility here. There are all kinds of burdens and difficulties that could come my way that would result in the need of having help from others. Surely we understand this. None of us are above that. And so when someone else is in need, then we are those who are to give that without resentment towards them. Furthermore, as we've seen in chapter 4, sorry, chapter 5, we are slaves to God. We are freed from our sin. We are made slaves to God and to one another. We are to, in love, serve one another. Or, in love, 
be enslaved to one another. And so bearing one another's burdens is an entirely appropriate and good and right thing for the Christian to do. And so as we continue on into the future, there's going to continue to be opportunities, obviously, for one another to bear one another's burdens. They might be great burdens, significant things, or they might even be smaller ones as well. And this is good and right, and it is part of Christian love, and it is a sweet and precious thing to have such help. Thirdly and finally, loving one another involves thoughtfully taking ownership of one's own self. Loving one another involves thoughtfully taking ownership of one's own self. So we've just read about the importance of bearing others' burdens. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read what might appear to be a contradiction. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So I think it's natural to wonder Do we bear our own load or do we help bear the load and burdens of others? And load and burden are are synonymous terms here. One writer comments here that Paul is borrowing from the style of Proverbs as he does this, where he uses an apparent contradiction in order to memorably make his point. So you think of Proverbs, at one point we're told to answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. But then we're also told right beside that to not answer a fool according to his folly. And, and, and the, that's memorable to us. We remember that because that seems to be contradictory. And of course, it's saying that wisdom tells us there's a time to answer the fool and there's a time not to answer the fool. The point that Paul is making here in verses 4 and 5 is of the need to take ownership of our own heart's condition before God. That we are to pay sufficient attention to ourselves, to our own lives, and to our own work before God. We are not to be those who are continually running around, finding fault in others, or seeking to help everyone else while neglecting our own souls. That would be an abuse of what Paul has said here. At the end of the day, we recognize that we all give account to God for our own selves and the lives that we live before him. In a couple of places in Galatians, the Judaizers, again, these opponents of Paul and of the believers in Galatia, these Judaizers were criticized for their meddling with others while they were clearly paying insufficient attention to their own selves. Uh, They walk in disobedience. They don't really obey the law, though they boast in certain works of the law, like circumcision and food laws, etc. They don't really walk in disobedience, but they're trying to get all the Galatians onto their team so that they might brag about them and boast about them. They want to say, look, see how successful we are. We've we've made these uh, converts to our version of, of faith. So in in chapter 4, verse 17, Paul says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you might make much of them. And then in in chapter 6, which we'll see next time, verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not keep themselves, keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
So they're, they're pumping up the Galatians, these false teachers. They're making much of them. But the ultimate end is that if, they, if the Galatians were to go along with them, they'd be cut off from the gospel. It would make the Judaizers look good, again, as they could say their mission was successful in Galatia. As many followed after them. Again, these are, they are unduly concerned with others, and they, they weren't even right with God themselves. This is not the way of the Christian. Christian life does, obviously, as we have seen, involve bearing with one another, helping one another. But we also must remember that each of us is responsible for our own selves. And so we must be those who pay sufficient concern for our own souls and hearts before God. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 14, 12. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. This is not saying we, we're, again, we're trying to earn God's salvation or anything like that. But as those who've been called out of darkness into light, if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God calls us to walk in this new life before him. And, and we want to be those who walk as faithfully as we possibly can with the Spirit's help. That's what we're called to. We're not to place our worth in helping others and and then neglect the pursuit of our own clear conscience and doing the work, as, as Paul calls it here, the work that God has called us to do. We are to seek to faithfully discharge our duties as Christ's people with the help of the Holy Spirit in whatever sphere he has placed us, in the home, at our workplace, in the church, in society, wherever we might find ourselves. But Paul mentions boasting here, and the kind of boasting he's talking about is not an arrogant pride or a self-righteousness. I think it is best to be understood as a clear conscience before God, the joy that comes from possessing a clean conscience before God, which comes through walking before him in honesty and regular self-examination in which we confess our sins freely before him and bring those into the light. It is not a clean conscience that comes from never having sinned. We have talked about this battle with the flesh that is going to rage on until the Lord comes or, or calls us home. But it is the clean conscience of having our lives and our hearts exposed before the light of God's word. We're not hiding anything. We're letting God's word expose us as necessary, as the sinners that we are, wherever we need it. And and then freely confessing it to God and, and resting in the salvation that Christ Jesus has earned. And carrying on, seeking to walk uprightly. And as we take care to do this. We can have and ought to have a clear conscience before God. In 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul says this. He says, for our boast is this. So there's the word boast. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. So here in Galatians, Paul is calling us to self-examination, to walk in a clear conscience, to deal honestly and truthfully before the Lord. He tells us this to balance the reality that we are also to bear one another's burdens. So one of the ways that we are to love one another is by taking sufficient concern for our own standing before God. 
We engage the battle with our flesh. We seek a clear conscience before God and before man. We take personal responsibility. I think this also informs us that the, just a, a purely victim mentality where everything's everyone else's fault and my own sin is something that's somebody else's fault and someone else failed me. And if, if that's not a Christian perspective on this. We deal honestly before the Lord. And even if someone else does fail me, if I fail you as a brother, that's still on me and I answer to the Lord for that. I need to confess that to the Lord as sin. And that still doesn't excuse you for the sins that you've committed either. If you remember back to when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, this kind of living before God was a major aspect of that Sermon of the Mount. That we live our lives first and foremost before God. And we deal with Him on the level of our heart, not merely in externals that can only be seen by man. But we need not fear that if we are trusting in Christ. We need not fear the light exposing our sinfulness if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if our salvation is in Him. And of course, again, this call to self examination does not mean that we will never need help from others. We will. And this is why we also bear one another's burdens and we don't resent the one in need of help. And so both of these things are true. We are those who are taking personal responsibility for our lives before God and we are to seek also to help our brothers and sisters along the way as needed and as we have opportunity. And so again, the Bible is not silent about how it is that we are to love one another in the church. And we are given here three clear ways that spirit-indwelt believers are to love one another and to seek to do this. By gently and carefully restoring those caught in sin, by humbly bearing one another's burdens, and by thoughtfully taking ownership of one's own self and our own standing before our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Whenever we come to your word and we are faced with the commands that you give us, if we are dealing honestly with this, we see very quickly how we fall short of this, how we have failed to love as you tell us to love. So Father, we confess this to you, that we do fall short of this. And we thank you once again that this is not the means by which we are trying to achieve our salvation. We thank you and praise you again that you have sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for our sins and to save us. That our saving righteousness is his righteousness credited to us. And Father, now as your people who are forgiven much, and who have been given your spirit, we see that it is good and right to love one another, to walk according to the spirit. We pray that you would strengthen us and empower us to this very task, that we would gladly and joyfully 
seek to love one another. Father, give us the humility that only you can give that this text calls us to. Father, that we would not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but that we would indeed in love serve one another. Father, I pray that you would kill in us our selfishness. Father, kill in us our pride that does not want to be corrected. Father, give us a realistic view of ourselves that we might truly walk with one another in humility, that we might receive correction as it is needed and help, that we might not be too proud to ask for help when we need help in sharing the load, whatever that might be. Father, I'm so, I'm so thankful for, again, the evidences of this love in our midst. And we pray that you would encourage us to press on in this all the more. And Father, as we do this, we do pray that it would be testimony to the work of your grace in our hearts. Father, we thank you for the great love with which you have loved us, seen chiefly in and through the cross and your work of redemption, and in your ongoing providence and goodness toward us. We pray that you'd use that to spur us on to further love for you and for one another. Help us, Lord, as we go from this place to trust you in all things. We pray that, again, you would increase our love for you and for one another. We pray these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.